Thank you for staying tuned. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is the audio companion to the commentary, Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly. We're talking about the Torah. We're talking about the written Torah. We're talking about the oral Torah. Right now, we have been talking about the, um, the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gemara. And what I want to do now for the students is I want to pull a significant quote from my CD-ROM version of the Talmud that I have. Uh, Jacob Neusner put it together. And um, he did an introduction to the Talmud on the CD-ROM, and I want to pull some information there for you. Some of you are interested in buying a Talmud, and I already recommended that... Um, well, I didn't recommend yet that you go, don't go out and buy a Talmud. I, I'm going to say so in my next section here in a moment. Um, but w what I'm really wanting to do is just get you guys familiar with um, uh, how the Talmud came together. So if you have the written material, we are near the top of page 7 with the paragraph entitled, Jacob Neusner has compiled, okay? Now, those of you who are curious about picking up a copy of the Talmud, just don't bother. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, don't bother yourself. Why not? The, the Talmud is so lengthy and so so voluminous, as I mentioned earlier, that to pick up a copy of the Talmud in written form, you're talking about several hundred dollars and uh, several feet of bookshelf space in your home. It's probably easier these days if you want to familiarize yourself with the Talmud. Either go to, the, to your average bookstore, do a search for the word Talmud, and you can find various commentaries that will give you the gist of the Talmud. Or if you're serious about reading through it, um, which I don't understand why you want to read through it. It's not, a, it's not a book that you read from cover to cover. Uh, you may be interested in picking up a CD-ROM version if you have a computer. CD-ROM will allow you to you know, search it electronically. I have a copy of it electronically. Um, Jacob Neusner compiled the most helpful rendition of the Talmud. It's available both in print as well as CD-ROM, and I use the CD-ROM. I'm looking at it right now here sitting in front of my computer as I record this podcast. In the introduction to this particular um, version of the Talmud, he makes these insightful comments about the formulation of the Talmud. So rather than me trying to explain it to you, I'm going to go ahead and let um, Neusner explain the Talmud to you, and then we'll return to its uh, relevance to us as Christians, because we're going to find out that in the apostolic scriptures in the New Testament, Yeshua makes a cryptic statement about the leaders of his day and the powers that they wield, and whether or not we should obey them or whether we should ignore them. And uh, we're going to see how it bears relevance to Christians, because it's found in our New Testament, it's found in our Bibles. But first, let's let Neusner explain the Talmud to us, okay? Quote, uh, and then I'll give you the, uh, the reference where I pulled all this from, if you happen to be interested in picking up that version of the Talmud on CD-ROM. It is still also several hundred, several hundred dollars. However, it's far less expensive than picking up the printed form. The Mishnah of 200 CE and the Gemara of 600 CE mark two of the four major stages in the history of the form and the formation of normative Judaism that begins with scripture and makes its authoritative statement in the Talmud. The, uh, by the way, again, the word Talmud, I said the word Mishnah refers to repetition, and Gemara seems to refer to um, uh, completion. The word Talmud itself stems from a Hebrew word which uh, has to do with learning. In fact, the Hebrew letter Lamed, L-A-M-E-D, is kind of a root word for this word Talmud, which refers to learning. Uh, Lamed means to learn, uh, Lamad means to learn, and Lamed, the letter, um, from where you're hearing the word Talmud is captured within that has to refer to learning, so Talmud refers to learning. At any, I almost said at any rate, you heard me. I'm, I'm trying to get, get get out of that statement. 
uh, just kind of bugged me after I went back and heard it, my own commentaries and I heard myself saying it over and over again. Let's see if I can change that. All right. As as it as it is, uh, Jacob Newsner goes on to say that uh, the begin the first stages of the Talmud find its complete presentation in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which came to closure. Um, it is commonly supposed in circulation of 450 BCE, before the Common Era, circa 450 BCE. The Pentateuch defined both the foundations of law and the master narrative of Judaism. The second stage, referring to the Talmud, is comprised by the long period of oral tradition, circa 450 BCE to 200 CE, that followed the closure of the Pentateuch and ended with the first steps in the formation of the Mishnah, taken in the first century of the Common Era. And of course, during this period, oral traditions augmented the laws of the Pentateuch by covering topics not treated in the written part of the Mosaic Revelation. Let me pause and interject. That's exactly how I described the Halakha earlier on. We have augmentation of the written, because the written Torah is not comprehensive enough to cover every single facet of life. That is why we refer to the halakha as the humanization of the word of God. The Torah with all of its perfection and glory, and it is a great reference work. It is a, it is a written revelation of God himself. It is perfect in its um, original autograph in that it needn't, it needn't be added to or subtracted from. However, it is a mere thumbnail sketch, as it were, of, of, of the, the totality of Jewish life. And so it can't possibly cover every single facet of human experience. In, in seminal form, it does. I mean, it, 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 it provides the background and the, uh, the, the impetus for gaining a, a better appreciation for the, in, in fact, the oral tradition. But the oral tradition comes along and fills in those gaps where the written tradition um, seems to be silent. And that is how the rabbis view it. So going back to Neusner's description, let's pick it up on uh, the top of page 4. This stage, referring to the augmentation of the written material, this stage is a matter of surmise because we have no surviving written documents in the tradition of the ancient rabbinic sages deriving from the period between the close of the writing of the Pentateuch and the writing of the Mishnah. We return to the second stage in a moment. The third stage, that of the formation of the Mishnah as we know it in the first two centuries of the Common Era, came to realization in particular with the setting down to writing of the Mishnah circa 200 CE. That, of course, that 200 CE would have been the end of the Tanaitic period. The Mishnah and its companion uh, supplementary collections, um, when he says supplementary, he's referring to the Mishnah and the Tosefta, along with scriptural exegesis, which is known as Midrash. Okay? These... uh, um, these companions organized and systematized the oral traditions that accompanied the written law of the Torah contained in the Pentateuch. These topical expositions will be described and the religious system for Israel's social order that they constructed will be defined below. Now this, of course, is the introduction to the CD-ROM version of the Talmud. If you have it, you read. this is what I'm giving to you. The fourth stage, that of the Gemara, or Talmud, uh, sometimes we say Mishnah and Talmud. Other times we say Talmud is referring to all of it. The Gemara is much lengthier um, because it is a um, an ex- ex- 
expansion of the Mishnah, including sometimes a Baraita, um, where we have what, what we might refer to as an external Mishnah, something that didn't make it in the first Mishnah. An external Mishnah may come along kind of like a, a little footnote to the Mishnah, as it were, a Baraita. Uh, but for the most part, the Gemara, the fourth stage, is going to be the largest part of what we call the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud, when, sometimes when people say Talmud, they are only referring to Gemara. Other times when they say Talmud, we're really just referring to the whole book, Mishnah and Gemara. But since the Gemara is the bulk of, the, of that work, it's, it's, it's okay to call the, uh, the, the Gemara the Talmud itself. Any, anyway, this is the fourth stage that um, Neusner refers to. Let's go back to his commentary here and close it up. The fourth stage, that of the Gemara or Talmud, resulted in the systematic clarification and amplification of the Mishnah by the two Talmuds. Well, he'll just explain what he means by two Talmuds. Along with the collection of the exegesis of passages of, of Scripture important in synagogue life. These two works are the Talmud, the two now, he's going to explain the two Talmuds. The two works are the Talmud of the Land of Israel in the Roman Empire, circa 400 CE, and the larger one, the Babylonian Talmud, in the Iranian Empire, circa 600 CE. And of the two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud, which we simply say Bavli, uh, the word Bavli is Hebrew for Babylonian, the Bavli, the Bavli provides the conclusive statement of rabbinic Judaism, end quote. In other words, we have two Talmuds in existence today, and only one of them is, is extremely authoritative, and that's the Bavli, the larger work, the more comprehensive work, the Bavli, the Jerusalem Talmud, or the Yerushalmi. That particular Talmud, to my, to my knowledge, uh, is not even completely translated into English yet. The Bavli is. Again, Neusner's translation is just one of those. Schottenstein's is another version that you can pick up um, uh, translated into English. Okay. This whole, all this talk about the Talmud and about oral tradition and, um, and, and, and adding to, as it were, filling in the gaps where the, uh, the written law does not give us enough information. All of this information may seem strange to us, um, but I, I suppose I should say don't think this is a strange practice. We do find this phenomenon in other religions as well. Islam has the, uh, what do we call, the uh, Quran, and then they have the Hadith, or the Hadith. Uh, Christianity, both Catholic and Orthodox versions, have their apostolic traditions, their their um, uh, what is uh, their their uh, uh, can uh, their what does Catholicism call it? The uh, um, the larger volume. Their their starts with a D. No, starts with a C. I'm drawing a blank. When I remember the word, I'll let you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Protestant churches generally don't recognize apostolic traditions as authoritative as the written Bible. But they do recognize their importance for theology, uh, you know, the, the the additions, as it were, to the written material, the traditions that surround the written material, the um, traditions of their elders, the traditions of their of their uh, patristic fathers, and so on and so forth. Now, I've taken time um, to elaborate on the detailed components of the Torah, uh, such as the written and the oral. Uh, you know the lengthy quotes from the Talmud and such, so that we might have a better appreciation for the next uh, the next section that we're going to talk about dealing with these two important covenants that we mentioned earlier. Remember, very early on in the com- in the commentary, we talked about the 
Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, the two aspects of the covenant that form the framework or the background behind um, all subsequent covenants that we find in the Bible. What of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants? Uh, you know, we asked the question earlier, um, what is our responsibility to these particular covenants? How shall we as Jews and Gentiles understand our roles in such covenants? Well, it is to this next section that we turn in an attempt to answer our question. So we're on the top, or near the top of page 8 now in our commentary. We turn now to a section entitled, A Summary of the Purposes of These Two Covenants. Uh, these two covenants, and the, the two that I'm referencing, or that I'm referring to, are the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, respectively. I want to now um, pull a quote from uh, Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. Um, and again, as earlier, I pre-recorded some of this information in previous commentaries. So let's go ahead and pick up the audio portion as I previously recorded it with the section uh, dealing with the two covenants and the quote from Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz, okay? I want to um, use a lengthy quote from a few friends of mine, Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. Um, they have a book out called Torah Rediscovered. Um, about ten years ago it was published by FFOZ um, <clears throat> on page 32 and 33. Uh, here's what they have to say under the heading, quote, a summary of the purposes of these two covenants. All right. The following explanation was taken from Torah Rediscovered uh, by Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz, FFOZ Publications. The book, by the way, is no longer published by First Fruits of Zion. I believe it's published now by Shorshim Publications. Ariel has recently written to me um, a few weeks back and requested that I uh, make that information known to my listeners and to my readers, okay? If you want to get the information uh, as to how to get the book, um, go ahead and send me an email at the uh, commentary email here, yeshua613 at hotmail.com. I will forward the information straight over to Ariel uh, Berkowitz and um, let him know that you're interested in getting the Torah Rediscovered book. Because again, as I mentioned, it is not available from FFOZ Publications. Anyway, here's the quote, all right? Quote, <clears throat> a person cannot appropriate the full blessings of the covenant with Moshe, the Torah, unless he first enters into the covenant with Abraham. The latter is done by faith and faith alone. The covenant of promise through Abraham gave Israel the physical promises. Not only are these physical promises a reality, they are also pictures of the spiritual relationship we have with Hashem. Moreover, they are illustrative of the spiritual promises of inheritance obtained by all believers through faith in Yeshua. They go on to say, quote, For those who trust Hashem for the promises, the proper order for faith and obedience is set by the sequence in which the covenants were given. In other words, faith must precede obedience. But the kind of faith accepted by Hashem is one that naturally flows into obedience. True obedience never comes before faith, nor is it an addition to faith. It is always the result of true biblical faith. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, the covenant of promise with Avraham must come before the covenant of obedience, which is Moshe. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure those promises by obedience, we would be going against Hashem's order. This, by the way, is the key to unlocking the difficult midrash used by Shaul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. 
All we could hope for would be a measure of physical protection and a knowledge of spiritual things. But we could not receive justification or a personal relationship with the Holy One through obedience to the Torah. It all had to start with faith. They go on to conclude, quote, Avraham came before Moshe, but Moshe did not cancel out Avraham. The two complemented each other as long as they came in the proper order. End quote. Again, I lifted that from pages 32 and 33 of Torah Rediscovered by um, the Berkowitzes. So, after having listened to the uh, very, very well um, articulated explanation, um, bringing the relationship of the two covenants um, to our attention, what are we to make of that? What does this mean for the Jew, especially, as well as the Gentile today? Well, my opinion, apart from being a well-reasoned theological argument for combating legalism, the concept topped here defines our identity as not only being grounded in the Torah, but it is who we are in the Messiah. If the um, blood of the sinless one has redeemed us from sin and unrighteousness, and of course he has, then we now have been clothed in his holiness. We now have a new identity as sons and daughters. And what is that identity? FFOZ has stated it well. We are the righteousness of Hashem in Messiah. Isn't that fantastic? The old man has died with the death of our Messiah. The new man has been raised unto life everlasting, just like the Messiah was raised to life. Of course, you can reference 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17-21 through 21 to see those truths. And all of these promises, what I'm trying to get you to see today, all of these promises are given to us and secured for us within the pages of God's wonderful Torah. That's why His Word is so important for us today. We dare not neglect the reading and the study of it because the promises that Yeshua speaks about are promises that the Father has made to His people and they are available to anyone who will step into true and genuine faith. Let's turn now to a discussion about keeping the commandments. We've already gone extensively and looked at uh, Talmudic quotes. We looked at the written Torah, the Torah Shabbatav, the Torah Shabbatav. Uh, we looked at, again, some quotes from Talmud. We've just now looked at um, our own Devorah Berkowitz and, and the way they explain how that the, um, the two covenants that are outlined in the Torah, the Avrahamic and the Mosaic, bear relevance to every single person living on planet Earth. And um, we saw that it's, it's crucial for us to understand the order um, that these covenants were given to us in the Bible. Abrahamic comes, comes first. Mosaic follows. Mosaic does not um, do away with or nullify the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, they complement one another. Let's turn now and talk about this, this uh, mysterious topic of keeping the commandments. Um, Shomer Mitzvot, this next section is entitled, the word Shomer Mitzvot, or the phrase Shomer Mitzvot, refers to keeping the commands or observing the commands. Um, quite literally, the word Shomer um, means uh, guarding. Uh, from the word shamar, which means to guard. But um, it, it's synonymous with uh, understanding that we're going to guard in order to do. Okay, We safeguard in order to implement. So let's talk about this, um, this subject, shomer mitzvot. In Judaism, 
safeguarding and keeping the Torah is central to performing the will of Hashem. And you can reference Deuteronomy 5.1 to see that God, in fact, wants his people to follow his ways. God desires that we walk in obedience to the Torah. Indeed, as properly understood from Hashem's point of view, the whole of the Torah was given to bring its followers to the goal of acquiring the kind of faith in Hashem that leads to placing one's trusting, uh, trusting faithfulness in the one and only Son of Hashem. Of course, we're speaking of Yeshua HaMashiach. And you can reference Luke 24, verse 27, as well as chapter, or I'm sorry, as well as Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. Also look up Romans 10, 4, and you'll see that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching, that the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. So to this end, the Torah itself has prophesied about him, about Yeshua, since as early as the book of Genesis. You recall that the first Messianic prophecy is Genesis 3.15. And the Torah continues to speak of our Messiah until its conclusion in Revelation 20, verse 20. As I speak about the Torah this way, in this capacity... The Torah acts like its etymological counterpart. Now, you may not know this, but the word Torah is stemming uh, from the root word yara. And according to the BDB, it's an archery term in that it, quote, teaches its adherents how to properly identify with Hashem by helping them to reach the mark. To be sure, as we read and study Torah, we see that God identifies sin, the Hebrew word is chata, he identifies sins as missing the mark. And according to the BDB, um, the word chata literally means to miss the mark. So, with that approach, you can see that um, there is a large place for a proper understanding of God's words, God's ways, and what it means to be pleasing to him. To that understanding, or to that approach, Judaism, as well as Christianity, um, approaches Torah observance in a, in a, in a, a myriad of ways, not to be, um, uh, well, to be sure, uh, they both approach them from differing ways, and, and that can be confusing. Uh, obedience to the Torah has long since been an oft misunderstood subject, both in the Jewish community and in the Christian one. I believe, in fact, as I'm studying more and more about the first century Judaisms, um, the, the first century Judaisms functioned with a, um, how call, shall we call it, a misunderstanding of Torah and God's ways. I mean, all men misunderstand God to an extent because of the, uh, God is, is, is unknowable, unsearchable. Uh, his ways are far above our ways. But even with the help of the Holy Spirit, we still wrestle and grapple with um, understanding our God and approaching Him. And thank God that, this sh that the, the Spirit has been given so that we can press in closer to our Heavenly Fathers. But getting back to the first century Judaisms, the prevailing theology of the first century Judaism, sincerely, albeit incorrectly, believed that genuine and lasting covenant status was granted to Israel and Israel alone. I need to pause and let that sink in for a moment. Israel believed, sincerely, but as I mentioned, incorrectly, they believed that they alone were the recipients of God's 
covenant promises and that if an individual wanted to join Israel they had to change their ethnic status from that of one from the nations to that of being an Israelite as determined and uh, defined by their halakha. So let's elaborate on that. Uh, Tim Haig of First Fruits of Zion Notoriety, he captures this concept well in his book, The Letter Writer. Let me pull a quote from that book, okay? Quote, If the extant rabbinic literature contains at least some expression of the general viewpoints of first century Pharisaism, then it is safe to say that the prevailing Pharisaic view of Paul's day was that every Israelite was secured a place in the world to come. End quote. He goes on to say, uh, let's see... He goes on to make a quote from the Mishnah. And the quote from the Mishnah reads like this, quote, All Israel have a place in the world to come, for it is written, Your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. End quote. Tim Haig's uh, book, The Letter Writer, was produced by First Fruits of Zion Publications in 2002. The quote was lifted from page 85. And the... Uh, Talmudic quote that I used there was from the Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1 and the Gemara to that is is uh, Babylonian Sanhedrin 90A folios there identified. All right. Um, as I mentioned, the verse that the Talmud above uh, quotes there is pulled from uh, Isaiah, from Yeshayahu. In fact, that's why it says, all Israel have a portion in the world to come, for it is written. That phrase, for it is written, is actually taken from Yeshayahu 60, verse 21, which reads, quote, from the Authorized Standard Version, Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. End quote. So, we see that the Mishnah is quoting the Torah, or the Tanakh, actually, when it when it formulates its halakha that says that all Israel has a place in the world to come. Now, if you read the verse, verse at face value, it seems to be possibly teaching that, but we do run into some um, problems. Let's 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 exegete the passage. Let's let's look at the uh, verse and notice some peculiarities. Let's go back to the Hebrew for this one, okay? The literal Hebrew of the phrase, quote, thy people also shall be all righteous. The Hebrew reads, va'amech kulam tzedakim, and your people, all of them, righteous. And what I've added uh, by way of um, clarification is what any translator would do. When he reads the, the Hebrew woodenly, he realizes that he's a, he needs to, um, <clears throat> how shall we say, clean it up a little bit by adding... Uh, all of your people, and then inserting the tense of the verb. All of your people are righteous, or all of your people will be, or shall be, is how it's rendered in most translations. And so, the the translators will insert the phrase, shall be all. But really, in the Hebrew, as I mentioned, it's not in the text, it's not in the Hebrew there. So, we look at the passage and we know that it's a future prophecy. All your people shall be righteous. So the future context of the passage lends to the choice of wording, of which I agree, by the way. Most translators are translating it according to the context, and that is the right way to approach the passage. Nevertheless, the statement of the prophets led the sages of old to adopt a position similar to the one that's listed in the Talmud, viz. Israel exclusively. 
shall be righteous. Not just Israel shall be righteous and other nations shall also be righteous, somehow, some way, they might have imagined. But the sages imagine that Israel alone shall be righteous. In this capacity, the sages imagine that Torah does not function to lead the individual to an imputed righteousness, uh, the way the pedagogue leads the boy student to the teacher of righteousness in Galatians 3.24. So, and, uh, and that's kind of a Christian understanding of the passage when we say that the Torah leads the individual to imputed righteousness. <clears throat> in fact, if you read Galatians 24, you'll see that exactly uh, that that's exactly what Paul is pointing at, is that the, the, the pedagogos, uh, the pedagogue, the boy student, leads the um the boy tutor I should say leads the um the boy leader leads the boy to the teacher of righteousness which of course is the Messiah. But the sages in fact rather saw that the Torah is instead given to the person who is righteous already. And how did that person again uh, gain their righteousness? Well, the uh sages of old uh gratuitously add that the person is righteous either by birth or by conversion. Thus, they make righteousness a closed set, an ethnic set, that's available only to Israel, or, more importantly, only to Jews. We shall be examining this viewpoint in subsequent commentaries to the series. Particularly, I want to um, point you to my commentary entitled Exegeting Galatians, and it is available on the website at graftinit.com. Click on the commentaries link, and then click on the more lessons link, and you can find it there. Getting back to our commentary here, the introduction to the Shomer Mitzvot series, it's my understanding that the errors surrounding one's relationship to God's Torah can be corrected when, once a person resolves the issues surrounding identity and legalism, and then begins to understand the intended nature and function of the Torah in the first place, and then faithfully applies it to their own lives. And how would we apply this to our lives? Well, for one thing, because the Messiah has already come, as of this uh, podcast, right? We're living in 2007, and as I understand it, the Messiah has already arrived. So because he's already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua. And how does that happen? It's not done under our own power. No. It's done through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to the glory of Hashem, the Father. That's how we live out Torah observance. We cannot presume that the Torah can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for Hashem, or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. So, to state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been, and it always will be. And to prove it, we, near, uh, we only need to turn to the Torah itself to see what it has to say about walking out the Torah. I give you these references for your consideration. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 30, verse 6. Look up Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Look up Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. Look up Romans seven twenty-two. 
and look up Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and chapter 10, verse 16. And in each one of these passages, you'll see a common theme. The Torah and the heart are both mentioned. The Torah is a matter of the heart. God's Spirit writes the Torah on your heart, and therefore, you have no excuse, you who are listening to this podcast, you have no excuse to walk it out legalistically or mechanically. And with that, that's a place to call it Part C. Let's um, close this part of the commentary down. It's about 30 minutes or so into uh, our discussion. We are at the bottom of page 10, and we're poised to turn now to the um, paragraph entitled, Is Conversion Required for Non-Jews? So stick around for Part D to my commentary to Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly. <laughs>